BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. At the end of the day tomorrow, California will no longer require vaccinated people to wear masks indoors. And most counties say they plan to follow the state's move. Omicron case numbers and hospitalizations are declining in many parts of California. But masks will still be required at hospitals, nursing homes, and in K-12 schools, though Governor Newsom has indicated he's eyeing rolling that back soon as well. We take a closer look at the changing rules, what's driving them, and hear how you're feeling about it. Forum is next. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. With universal state mask rules expiring tomorrow, most vaccinated Californians will be able to go maskless in indoor settings come Wednesday. That's most, but not all, Californians. Los Angeles and Santa Clara counties, for example, will keep their indoor masking rules for the time being. So to get us up to speed on what changes are happening where, we're joined now by Leslie McClurg, health reporter for KQED. Hi, Leslie. Good morning. So run through how things will be different on Wednesday in California. What's going to change for most people? For most people who are vaccinated, they can enter indoor spaces. So this is, you know, you can go to the store, you can go to the drugstore, you can go to the mailbox or the, you know, the post office. But (laughs) if you are getting on public transit, if you're going to a hospital or you're visiting a nursing home or someone in a prison, you need to continue to wear your mask. So there are some exceptions, some congregate settings where you will need to continue to wear your mask. And if you visit Santa Clara County or Los Angeles County, or you live in either of those counties, you will still have to keep wearing your mask if you, even if you are vaccinated. And if you are unvaccinated, uh, you need to continue to wear your your mask in all of those places. 
So so what accounts for this shift in policy now? The state's own words are that hospitals, for example, that they are in general still over capacity. I think what is there's two things that are coming into play. I mean, one, cases are dropping exponentially fast. If you look at the graphs, cases rose incredibly fast, and now they are dropping uh, nearly as fast. Just in the last two weeks, they've dropped 67%. So we're seeing a really fast fall, and that is expected to continue over the next couple of weeks, to continue to fall so that we are down below pre-surge levels you know, in a week or two. I think the other thing that's coming into play is that Omicron is is really a different beast than than previous variants. This is a this is a variant that has proved out to be much less severe. Cases are much less severe, and we have a population that is the majority is vaccinated, and so we are in a much more protected place. In addition, we have some treatment options on the table, and so we're just not in in a vulnerable place like we have been in the past. And so public health officials are are making the move here saying that given the risks on the table, we are safe enough to drop our masks. Now there are varying opinions about whether or not we're doing this maybe two to three weeks prematurely, um, but public health officials are determining that, that they are ready to do that, except for these two counties. Yeah, so explain why in Los Angeles health officials there are keeping their indoor mask mandates in place. Well, Los Angeles County, I mean, throughout the pandemic has been the state's hotspot. They have seen the highest case numbers. They have seen the most deaths. And it has consistently been a place where there has been very high transmission. And so the county is determining that in places like bars and restaurants, you know, lounges, places where, you know, you're generally, if you're drinking cocktails all night, you're probably never wearing your mask during that time. It's just not safe enough and that they still want cases to drop and especially for hospital space to be more uh, available. Mm. Um, And the same is true in, in Santa Clara County. That county has you know, right now has the highest case rates in the Bay Area. And so they're determining that they want to wait, you know, a, a little longer until case rates drop there as well. Just because, it, again, we're not quite as low as potentially some epidemiologists would like to to see. For, for example, you know, I don't know if folks remember the state's tiered system where we had different colors that, you know, kind of demonstrated how dangerous or how widespread the virus is. And we're still in the orange. And and so right now in Los Angeles and Santa Clara Clara County, officials are determining like, let's pause just for a little bit longer. Do you have a sense of the criteria they will use to determine when they will lift indoor mask mandates and if they're terribly different? So in Santa Clara County, they there is a three tiered. There is a three bullet points that they're looking at, and right now we are meeting their vaccine requirement. Uh, we're not quite where they want to be uh, for hospitalizations, and they're not quite where they want to be in terms of, of uh, test in terms of widespread and how many cases are on the ground. And so they're waiting for those things to come into play. And when that happens, then they then the officials there say they are you know, then at that time, we'll be able to drop the masks. So there is there is data and they're looking at that data and they're basing their decisions on that data. Has there been pushback that you've seen <laughs> to these two major counties? Santa Clara is the biggest county in the Bay Area. I think LA is the biggest yes. county in the state. Uh, what are people saying about their health officials keeping indoor mask mandates in place while the rest of the state potentially will not? 
I would say there's been some very vocal pushback against against both of these decisions. Um, I think people feel very tired and and very politically polarized on this issue. Um, I watched the press release or the press conference last week, and the the comments during the press conference for Santa Clara County were were quite heated. Some people were very frustrated uh, that the county is going against what the state is requiring at this point, and there were other people who were really grateful that the public health officer there, Sarah Cody, is making that decision is is deciding that hey, look, we're going to go different in this. Moment moment because that's what the data is showing us. And people felt relieved that she's making that decision and keeping them, you know, potentially safer, whereas other people are exhausted and and made some really good arguments. You know, there was a pastor on there who made the argument that said, hey, going to church is just not the same in a mask. You can't sing as loudly and express as much and be as close, you know, to other people in your congregation as warm. And he's seen that wear at at the church and sort of the close-knitted nature of that church. And so he says people should be able to determine the risk that they want to make. And if they feel unsafe, they can watch the service online. So there were all kinds of different opinions expressed there, and uh, they varied widely. Well, curious listeners what your opinions are of California's approach to easing mask requirements. We're talking about the lifting of the indoor mask mandate in California, and that on Wednesday, most vaccinated Californians will not have to wear a mask in most indoor public spaces. You can share your thoughts at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can share them on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or you can email us forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Leslie McClurg, health reporter for KQED. So the State Department of Public Health also said something interesting that it will make, quote, adjustments to policies, even more policies related to COVID-19 restrictions soon. (laughs) Do you have any sense of what other adjustments might be coming? Yeah, I think they're definitely pointing towards, you know, there's a big group of people, and I should have mentioned this earlier, that do not get to take their masks off on on Wednesday, and that is students. So kids do not get to take their masks off yet in schools. And so I believe the state is hinting at the fact that in coming weeks, probably they are going to change that. Uh, We will see. I think there is some pressure politically for the governor to make that change. We are seeing states like Connecticut, New Jersey, Oregon, governors there in those three states are lifting their mask mandate in schools. Newsom is determining that he's holding on for now, um, though he did say, and this is kind of a loose quote, he said something along the lines of, we have a date with destiny and we will have to turn the page on the status quo soon. So in some ways, it's just a matter of time. Uh, he is not alone, though. You know, New York and Illinois are still requiring kids to wear masks there. Uh, the governor is expected to speak today about you know, what it what it means to live with an endemic virus going forward. I don't think he's going to talk about schools yet today, but I think that will be coming. He has said that he is in negotiations with the unions, uh, the teacher unions who are still asking that that masks are required or that there are certain, you know, data sort of, you know, case rates, et cetera, that are down low enough so that vaccination rates are high enough and case rates are low enough that it is safe for kids in schools to be there and for teachers to be safe while they're also in school. 
Well, we're getting a couple of comments. Denise writes, the revoking of indoor mask rules is illogical. COVID is still there and cases will rise again as soon as mask rules are released. Omicron may produce milder illness, but there is still a risk of long COVID. The treatment options the guests referred to are in very short supply. Finally, the honor system is entirely untrustworthy. People who aren't vaccinated cannot be trusted to wear masks. Another listener tweets, will businesses that want their clientele to continue to mask up be able to enforce their own masking rules? And will medical offices that aren't hospitals be able to enforce masking rules? Do you know the answer to that, Leslie? I believe so. I think businesses can determine if they want to make that requirement that they can. Yes. So and, it is, and the same is true for, you know, say a dentist or, you know, an office where, where you're going in, it's a medical setting that you, that you can still make that requirement. Yeah, absolutely. Let me go to caller Carrie in San Jose. Hi, Carrie. Hi. I just wanted to say I think it's premature to lift mask mandates, and I think it's dangerous because the people that are most likely to not wear a mask when there's a, um, no mandate um, on the vaccinated or the unvaccinated people who just don't care about others. Well, Carrie, thanks for sharing how you're feeling about it. Marsha also tweets, why isn't the increase in California COVID deaths mentioned? Does that mean California will stop counting them because it's too hard to tell whether someone died from or with COVID? I'm glad Marsha is bringing that up because the numbers are actually pretty high, right, Leslie, in terms of my understanding, at least from the report from the state health department last Friday, is that death rates are up about 13% just from two weeks ago. Yeah, she does make a really good point. I mean, deaths typically lag by about 30 days. And so even though case rates, you know, are plummeting, deaths have actually gone up, which is kind of a typical thing that we see is that, you know, we didn't see deaths rise very much during the worst of the Omicron surge, but now we are seeing those tick up. And and that, I mean, every death, every person matters. And, and I do think these are very difficult calculations. And, and she makes a really good point. You know, we are going to see deaths probably tick up here for the next few weeks, even as case rates plummet. And yeah, like a, she makes a good point. I think epidemiologists are split about this as well as, as whether or not this is the right time. It's it's very tricky calculation. Hmm. Leslie McClurg is a health reporter for KQED, and we're talking about the lifting of indoor mask mandates in California this week. You can join the conversation with your opinion on the state's approach by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And you can always email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the lifting of indoor mask mandates in California. They'll expire tomorrow for many parts of the state and take effect on Wednesday the 16th. Wondering you, our listeners, how you're feeling about the lifting of the mask mandate. Are you counting down the minutes until you can be unmasked? Are you, like some of the listeners that we've already heard from, worried about this kind of a change? There are even people who are kind of mixed that they'll miss wearing a mask because they've gotten used to some of the benefits they feel like it is conferred upon them. Lots of opinions that run the gamut, and we want to hear yours. 866-733-6786. Email address forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to Domingo in Torrance. Hi, Domingo. Oh, hi. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. My comment was that uh, that uh, I think that we've gotten the public um, uh, health message wrong. And I think that a great number of people are tired of the silly rules. And what I mean by this is that um, I am for masking. I am, I am vaccinated and I wear a mask uh, because I think it's, you know, it's, it's a nice thing to do. However, I think the health officials, especially in LA County where I live, they have mandates that make no sense. For instance, I, ha- I can go to a restaurant to go in and order. I have to wear a mask. But a foot next to me, there could be somebody eating, and they're not wearing masks. One example. Second example, we see all of our politicians, Gavin Newsom, for instance, uh, Garcetti, uh, outside at the Super Bowl, L.A. County, they should be wearing a mask. They're not wearing a mask. So you have all these mandates that are there to protect people. However, because they're silly, people know better, and because our politicians are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, it tells people, tells me at least, that it isn't very serious. Now, having that said, I think that um, if people are um, concerned of the virus, they should take care of themselves. If you need to wear a mask, wear a mask. If I'm going to go into a restaurant and the the mask mandate is lifted, but they tell me to wear a mask, I will wear a mask because it's their place, not mine. So, but but I think we need to get, um, I don't know, some sort of uh, Mm. concise message and not be so um, illogical with the mandate because it doesn't matter... At the end of the day, it seems like it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong as long as we do it and we comply with it. But if it, to me, it makes no sense. Well, Domingo, thanks for your yeah. point and, and noted. Let me go to caller Jasmine in Oakland now. Hi, Jasmine. Hi there. Um, yeah, I just want to call in because, um, you know, I'm a fully vaccinated and boosted young adult, um, but I have two part-time jobs, one working at a tourist attraction in San Francisco, and then another uh, teaching in Alameda County. So, you know, both of my professions are sort of high risk and high exposure. And I just have a lot of concerns about what it's practically going to look like enforcing this vaccinated versus non-vaccinated in these sort of mixed vaccination environments. Um, I think a lot of my coworkers in both uh, roles are also concerned and just sort of thinking about what it's going to be like, you know, dealing with people and and um, trying to sort of communicate and come up with some sort of concrete plan where people do not feel like they are, you know, being marginalized in any way. So, yeah. Yeah. Jasmine, thanks. Leslie, this enforcement question, have you heard concerns about that as well? 
Absolutely. I mean, it's tricky. The manpower that would be required to say, have someone at the door of a, you know, grocery store or shops, etc. And checking vaccine cards is, is just probably not possible. So this really is the honor system unless a business wants to go forward and, and, and staff someone. And so it is going to be tricky. I mean, basically, this is a risk situation that everyone feels very different about. And, pol- and policymakers are, are having to make really tricky decisions about how to protect people and how do I think I don't think I think we need to not lose track of in this conversation that we have to learn to live with this and so what does that mean going forward and what kind of decisions do we make to make that possible yeah interestingly Santa Clara's health department noted that they are keeping in mind essential workers who have to work in public spaces and engage with the public regularly in terms of their decision to keep indoor mask mandates. Um, Well, I want to bring Dr. Yvonne Maldonado into the conversation, Professor of Pediatrics and Epidemiology and Population Health, Chief in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Maldonado, really glad to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm guessing you've heard some of the comments that our listeners have made, and I really am curious. In your view, do you think the state is making the right call from a public health standpoint to allow its indoor mask mandate to expire? You know, um, I think um, I did get a chance to hear some of the comments, and I, I think we're in a transition period, and change is difficult. Uh, you know, I was um, out and about a bit. Uh, doing errands this weekend and thinking about how many changes and how resilient people have been over the course of the last two years. And um, I think there's still a lot of um, stress induced by not knowing what's coming and what the risks could be. And um, and it's understandable, but I, I do think in general, we are in a very good place right now. There are a lot more studies that are, you know, smaller studies, but really showing that for example, in California, because we're so highly vaccinated, uh, in general, we're going to be in pretty good shape. The data are now showing uh, that vaccinated and boosted people are highly unlikely to get infected. I think the rate in a one, two million person study was something like 0.2%. Um, now, this was before Omicron, but still, um, we, we know that Omicron carries uh, different uh, lower risks for most people for being severely ill. Um, and so I think there's um, there's there's really a, a matter. The big issue I think right now is risk perception. I think the state huh. is trying. Yeah, I think I think people are trying to gauge their risk. You heard that on the last couple calls, and some people don't think there's risk. Some do. I can tell you right now that in our healthcare setting where we've been working nonstop, um, the places where people are getting infected are when they take off their masks to eat with each other. So yes, that's a risk spot. If you're not sitting at the same table with somebody you're probably not going to get infected. We're not seeing that happen. So it is a pretty close contact within that three to six foot radius without a mask. And so I think people are going to have to gauge their own risk tolerance, given that most people are vaccinated and boosted. If you're in large crowds, I would be really careful. If you're going to the Chase Center, for example, where you have to have all kinds of documentation to get in, I think I'd feel pretty safe. In fact, I've been there twice already. So, um, uh, you know, it's, We have to move forward at some point, but we have to reassure people as well. Yeah, I am curious how you're making your decision just for you personally. Will you mask indoor? uh, Will you unmask indoors and in what settings? 
Yeah. You know, I think if I feel, if I see the restaurant and it's not really, I, first of all, I don't go to bars. I mean, I'm, I generally don't go anyway, but I'm not sure that would be my favorite venue right now. <laughs> um, I have, I would go if I had to go into a setting where there was a bar, if it was, if it was not crowded and I felt like I could set myself apart with my, whoever I'm with and have a drink there, I, I would do that. I'd probably wear my mask in between though. I'm not going to theaters yet just because of my own personal preference. There's nothing wrong with going, I think, but I um, would going to the drive-in a lot, for example, but I would uh, go to a restaurant um, and eat indoors if I felt that, you know, cause they're still asking people, they're still distancing a reasonable amount. Now, if it was a really crowded place, I might, might defer. So it's really a matter of how comfortable you are in transitions. Well, Nathaniel writes, there is still a segment of the population younger than five years that are not eligible for vaccines. Would it not be prudent to wait for this group to have the ability to be vaccinated before relaxing mandates? As a parent, it makes it more difficult for me to feel comfortable bringing my toddler to most public places. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, you've seen the whole uh, change back and forth. Even the FDA, as you can see, has been having a hard time with that one. Because we're again, it's a, we're in the middle of change. Should we wait for the three dose data? Should we move ahead and start getting kids vaccinated under five? Um, I do think that the under five year olds um, are coming into play. For example, in settings where remember uh, the the state at one point said that, or in the county said they wanted to wait until eight weeks after the va- the pediatric vaccine uh, requ- uh, uh, um, approvals had gone forward last right. year. And part of it is to reduce the transmission. But I think the under five-year-olds are actually going to be more likely to, to not bring it home. They're, they they may bring it home, but if you're vaccinated and boosted around those kids, you're less likely to take it out elsewhere. So I think that may be in part, not completely, but in part, one of why uh, one of the reasons why Santa Clara County thought, let's just wait a bit longer. Um, but um, I think we just need to move ahead because the adult population is ready to move ahead. And as long as the kids are protected, those over two, for example, can be masked. I would be more careful with young, young kids who aren't vac- who can't be vaccinated. I would mask them if they were in public spaces. You would mask them. Um, and just for background, we learned last week, of course, that the FDA will wait for more data before deciding whether to authorize the Pfizer, Pfizer vaccine for kids under Five, And this was actually in response to Pfizer asking for a delay after they got more data on the effect of Omicron with vaccine trials in mid-January and realizing that it really even then did quite a bit worse. Some have made the point that uh, even if the vaccine was available for under fives, that it wouldn't be a game changer because the uptake will likely be very low, especially if you look at the uptake from for five to 11 year olds uh, that has been available for months now. What do you think about that, Dr. Maldonado? Yeah, that's really a sad state of affairs to me. Uh, I think uh, we have had this continuous messaging that children aren't affected by this virus. And not only have they had direct impacts, which I can talk about, but we've had a tremendous amount of indirect impacts on mental health and school issues, uh, neurodevelopmental issues, from missing school, we, I work with the American Academy of Pediatrics, and since last, since two years ago, we've been talking about kids need to go back to school. Schools need to be resourced 
to do that. And I think it took a long time for schools to be able to muster those resources. And now most schools, I think, have the ability to bring kids back safely. Um, we weren't going to get rid of infections, but they're going to be at a low enough level. Uh, and so I think that the other issue is uh, specifically around the vaccine. This issue that vaccines are not safe is not absolutely not true. We are seeing data on billions of doses of vaccines overall and hundreds of millions of doses given of the mRNA vaccines in particular. And the data are just solid. We have never seen vaccines that are this safe. We've rarely seen vaccines that are this effective. And so that's why it was a surprise to see the under five data, but the dose is very small because it's adapted to the reactions that children at that age might get to a higher dose of a vaccine. And that's normal for many vaccines that we give to children. The doses generally are lower than you give to older children and adults. Now, um, I just think the messaging around how safe and, and effective these vaccines are so far for kids over five is really critical. Just uh, less than 30% of kids five to 11 are fully vaccinated around the country. Even in, the, in, even in California, we're not doing that well. And I think part of it is people, again, the risk perception is that, well, it's not that big a deal in kids. But those of us who work in children's hospitals around the country are just seeing uh, hundreds and hundreds of kids coming in, actually thousands, if you, you know, really tens of thousands of kids over around the country who've come in. And the vast majority of the kids who come in, in with symptoms of COVID, not just happen, happening to come in with infection, but with symptoms are the vast majority, I would say more than 90% are unvaccinated or can't be vaccinated. So um, it is, the risk is much lower to have severe disease in children than in say a 65 year old adult, that's for sure. But it doesn't mean that that child's life is not as valuable. They should be protected because the risk is still there we put helmets on kids and put them in seatbelts for risks that are far lower of having a bad outcomes than having a bad COVID outcome. We're talking to Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, Professor of Pediatrics and Epidemiology and Population Health at Stanford University School of Medicine, Chief the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Leslie McClurg is a health reporter for KQED, also with us, and so are you, our listeners, 866-733-6786, the number to call. Just curious to stay on this for one moment before I go to another call that we have coming in. What do you think about the move right now to roll back, or at least there will be, it is presumed, a process to start rolling back masking in schools? Dr. Maldonado. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's hard to say. I, I think, you know, one of the things we've learned during this pandemic is that our healthcare systems and our regulatory systems are very patchwork. And, you know, there are states' rights, and that's important. Um, but when you're dealing with a public health crisis, you know, the fact that the federal government makes recommendations and states make their own decisions, and then within that, counties and school districts may make their own decisions as well, leads to a lot of patchwork approaches, which I think really affect um, the ability to really mitigate transmission. You know, viruses don't respect borders, as they say, and it's true here as well. So I do think that... Um, Rolling back masks might be a person, a, a really tailored decision. I could see where there would be 
schools, for example, that are highly vaccinated, where the teachers are vaccinated, the, the, the kids are highly vaccinated, their older kids, for example, high school, um, and, and they're more able to handle, you know, the, the rules, you know, we have to also balance the fact that some older kids also don't like to follow rules, but that's a separate issue. And in a situation like that, you might think, okay, let's move, let's move forward. There was a study that was published this weekend uh, that looked at uh, looking actually primarily at school sports in universities. And they picked a number of universities, division one universities across the country. Stanford was one of them. And they looked at whether athletes were more likely to be infected than non-student athletes in schools. And for almost all the schools, except for one, and that was Stanford, the risk among athletes was actually lower than the risk among the general student population for being infected. But the reason Stanford stood out, and I'm not trying to make an argument one way or the other, but is that the risk in the student population was so low overall that, that it wasn't much better, much worse, much better in the, huh. in the student alley. So the fact is that our policies, not only here at Stanford, but in California, Santa Clara County, were so strict that um, we actually did better because we did looked worse. I mean, our student athlete looked better because the students overall risk of infection was so low that it looked like the athletes were more protected. And um, in fact, of that study, th there were three schools that had very low overall student rates and they were all in California. So the point here is even in college, when you're doing uh, you know, very close contact sports and you remember all the mitigations we have for sports, I mean, our st students couldn't play in Santa Clara County, they had to play outside of the state if they were in, in university settings. So the point is, I think it's got to be individualized. So I think rolling back makes sense. It's certainly rolling back outdoors makes a lot of sense. The kids can play outside and if they're, and as long as they're distancing reasonably well, um, and I think some people say three feet for outdoors if you're not eating and um, six feet if you're eating, if you can manage that and you have the resources, then I think it's okay. The problem, of course, is the schools that can least afford to do that also have the highest community rates of transmission. So that's where the health disparities and the resource disparities really come into play, where we yes. see private schools that can do it and public schools that can't in some cases. Well, it sounds like Mr. Cecily would like to see these gone for the older grades. Cecily writes, why can we not differentiate 5 to 11-year-olds from 12 to 18-year-olds in schools? Why does my 17-year-old fully vaccinated boosted high school junior have to abide by the same masking rules as a kindergartner? We're talking about the changes to masking rules in California, and you, our listeners, are weighing in with your questions and reactions to the lifting of the mask mandate this week in many parts of California. Most counties, but not all. Um, also getting a sense of, are you counting down the minutes until you can unmask? Are you concerned about it? 866-733-6786, the number to call. 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. Our Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, at KQED Forum. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, California's indoor mask mandate expires. And after that, on Wednesday, the state no longer requires vaccinated people to wear masks indoors, except in schools, public transit, healthcare facilities, jails. Most California counties are doing that. But as this listener, Joe, writes, Mendocino County is also keeping their indoor mask requirement for at least another month, except for closed events where everyone proves they are vaccinated. Thank goodness for courageous public health officials. We're talking with Leslie McClurg, a health reporter for KQED, and Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and of epidemiology at Stanford. And let me go to more calls. Evelyn in Castro Valley. Thanks for waiting, Evelyn. Hi, thanks. I'm glad to talk with y'all. So I wanted to raise that one of the things that I'm hearing recurrently in the conversation with the listeners um, and in this conversation abroad is that we're thinking about what we are doing as folks who are able to get vaccinated and as folks who are vaccinated. And I'm hearing also vilification of people who are not vaccinated. And I wanted to raise the point that there are many people who due to immunocompromised, being immunocompromised due to other medical issues that are going on, that they can't get vaccinated or with access issues, right? There are multiple reasons why people would be unvaccinated and this decision to remove masking mandates puts the folks who are most vulnerable, so not just children, but also adults that are most vulnerable to COVID and to long COVID effects in a place of danger. Yeah, Evelyn, thanks so much for making that point. And and Leslie, you just recently reported on the experiences of of the medically vulnerable in the pandemic. Can you talk about what you learned here and and the concerns around these lifting of mask mandates. This is a really, this moment in the pandemic is extremely tricky for those who are immunocompromised because there's kind of a mentality that I think is, is fairly widespread at this point that Omicron is not as severe, that it produces, you know, less severe symptoms. It's, you know, cold or flu-like. And so therefore we can let down our guard and, and change our strategy going forward. And unfortunately, in this moment, as a caller pointed out, the treatment options for those who are immunocompromised who may not be able to get the vaccine or have you know, a good response to the vaccine, those treatment options are in low supply. And so as you lift masking and you bring potentially more people into contact. And uh, in this moment, those who are immunocompromised may still have to be really careful. Now, the good news is that they can continue, you can obviously continue to wear a mask, and there is good science showing that masks do protect you as well. So they can continue to wear a mask and socially distance, but they cannot go out and just act like life is normal. 
and not worry about getting a cold. And so this is a very tricky option, tricky, tricky moment for them. I think going forward, once we have ample supplies of treatment options, you know, the situation changes slightly. And luckily, they can get a fourth booster shot in this moment if their body does have some response to the vaccine. So, but it's a tricky moment for sure. And yes. I think being sensitive <clears throat> to that is important. Well, and as Evelyn points out, there's there's a whole range of people with different needs and conditions, people who cannot get vaccinated and people who cannot be masked. And Evelyn's reminding me that, uh, you know, to the state guidance is that people with medical conditions that prevent them from wearing a mask include, you know, people who have difficulty that will obstruct breathing or make them otherwise incapacitated, that it's important to remember that not, not all unvaccinated people are unmasked. People are people who are choosing not to do this. Um, Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, what is your advice to those who may be immunocompromised in this moment? Well, this um, situation reminds me a lot of, uh, of the um, situation that we've had for children in schools who are immunocompromised or who um, uh, otherwise can't be vaccinated against measles, for example, or who get vaccinated and don't respond well because of underlying conditions. And we've had we had over the past several years uh, reduced, markedly reduced uh, numbers of other children uh, accepting measles vaccines. And so we really had to tighten up our restrictions on allowing children into schools who weren't vaccinated because they were um, exposing these uh, vulnerable children. So it's a very similar scenario. And again, um, it really does um, limit the ability of individuals to be able to um, partake of, you know, what could potentially be high risk situations. It doesn't mean these people have to be completely isolated, but it does require an additional set of layers of, of, uh, of support. I certainly am involved here at the hospital with um, uh, understanding how we can protect our most vulnerable. Our, our providers who take care of immunocompromised patients are constantly working to advise their patients. Um, there are support groups, as you probably already know, but this is really an area that is of concern, uh, but it's of concern for other diseases as well. We've gone through it before. Um, I think this is just affecting a lot more people now. There are, as you probably have already reported in the past, about 11 million immunocompromised people in the U.S. on top of the kids who aren't vaccinated who we talked about. So it's a, it's a quite a substantial proportion of the population. So I do think one of the other themes here is one of being kind and empathetic to one another and making sure that we know that the main reason to be vaccinated is not to protect other people, but if that is actually a great bonus to be able to do that, not only for yourself, but to others around you who may be facing challenges that you may not be aware of. Well, Colin writes, it's extremely upsetting to me that in changing these mask rules, there appears to be almost no regard for those at higher risk, the immunocompromised, those who medically can't vaccinate or can't because they're too young. I'm not masking just to protect me. Barbara writes, I'm so pleased that my Santa Clara County leadership has the courage to follow the science and wait a bit before removing the mask mandate. We're protecting the medically fragile, those who cannot be vaccinated, and our valued healthcare professionals. Even though I have hearing loss and masking makes my life more difficult, I am happy to take 
the safer course. Raylan writes, I work for local government, and with the mask mandate ending tomorrow, most of us were excited to take our masks off in the office. But because we have four people who are not vaccinated or do not want to share their vaccination status, we will not be able to. So because they do not want to comply and be good citizens, we continue to wear the masks. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Leslie, you had mentioned the comment that uh, Governor Newsom had made in the context of schools and potentially relooking at schools. And he said the words, we are in a date with destiny, as you said, um, that, that we need to turn the page on this. I'm wondering if you are feeling like there is a different mood here, not just among public officials, but generally a different statewide mood about the rollback now of indoor masking rules, as opposed to when the federal government had recommended it in May. And, you know, we've heard a lot about fatigue and so on. And if you think that is informing policy to some extent. Absolutely. I think it's informing (laughs) policy. I mean, if you look at the numbers last June when we dropped the masks universally in California, they were much lower than they are right now. So I do believe that fatigue is playing a big role. We're not waiting until we have the same numbers as last June. And I think think people are tired. And I think we are asking questions like, does it hurt our kids to be in masks all day? Parents are tired. Parents are worried about what that does to their social interactions. And we don't know yet on the data in terms of schools, but but parents are worried. And I think we're all tired. And I think last June, we thought when we took those masks off that the vaccine would help us beat COVID. And in this moment, we are all accepting that we did not beat COVID and we will not beat COVID and it will be endemic. And so how do we learn to live with it? And I think that mood change is what is driving a lot of this decision, as well as, well as the numbers. But they are higher than they were. So obviously, mood is playing into it, I think. Well, this is no rights, perhaps a different perspective, but I am a triple vaccinated senior who is very eager to drop the indoor mask requirement in places such as grocery stores. The mask wearing in the Bay Area has developed into a near cult and offers meaningless protection under some circumstances, as, for example, an earlier caller noted in restaurants wearing a mask when ordering and then the mask comes off for the meal. Dr. Maldonado, what do you think about about the the state mood, the governor's comments that signals that he's thinking about COVID as an endemic issue now. What do you think about when we will reach endemicity and that shift? You know, in as you, yeah, as you know, there have been a number of articles, op-eds. I mean, everybody is weighing in from their own particular perspective on what does it really mean Um and I think there are some technical uh, epidemiologic definitions, meaning a disease that is circulating constantly through a population. What's different about COVID as opposed to endemic colds or endemic flu is that this is a brand new disease that when it became endemic also had hundred percent susceptible populations in the entire world. So it turned into a massive uh, onslaught of, of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths that we are not through with. But the reality is there are many other diseases in the world that are endemic and cause you know millions of deaths. We have kind of attuned ourselves to pushing those out of our minds uh, for obvious reasons. I think it's hard to think about everything that's going on every day, but I think we have to You know, I don't know what the governor's thinking, obviously. I think it's all of the factors, though, that you've talked about. And it's interesting to note that every single time we've come back and 
peeled things away, we were always at a higher level than we were in the previous surge to that. So we, we attenuate and we get become resilient in some ways. Our risk perception changes about what we're willing to tolerate. And it's in with Omicron, which was just amazingly, stunningly transmissible, we just saw these amazing high rates. And so coming down to this high level is still much higher than what we've seen even at some peaks of previous surges. So I think, uh, you know, people are adapting. I think there's the, the vaccination, the boosting really do seem to make a difference, although the data are still tough to interpret, really do seem to make a difference in reducing severity. So that's a good sign. There are subpopulations that are going to be at risk, and those people are going to need to take that into account. But I think overall, this is a time when it's maybe a good time when the Omicron is, it is plummeting, actually. When we're looking at the numbers, I was just on a call before this with my national partners, and it's dropping everywhere. So we're trying to take advantage of a time when things might be much lower and getting ourselves, dipping our toe in the water here, seeing what happens. And hopefully, you know, holding our breath to see if the next variant that comes along is not worse. So mm. um, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. I think there should be people who will um, will be need more protections, kids in schools. I think healthcare settings, absolutely. Uh, I think the things that we're doing now um, in the in Santa Clara County make a lot of sense. Um, but um, we have to we have to give it a try and see where we are and be rational about those decisions that we might individually make for venues and whether or not we want to leave our mask on or, or off. So we'll we'll just have to see it. It's um, it's an, it is an experiment. We've never been through this before. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado is chief in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Stanford University School of Medicine. Leslie McClurg is health reporter for KQED, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You mentioned variants. This B2A subvariant that is being described as the most transmissible known version of this virus, I imagine you are monitoring that or trying to keep up with what new information is coming out about that. Anything we need to understand at this point, Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, about the potential danger of this? Uh, yeah, well, we don't know much about, again, it's, it, it is in the Bay Area. We know it's here. Um, we've already found it in uh, wastewater surveillance that, that one of our my colleagues here at Stanford has been doing for several months now. Um, so we know that it's circulating and it's circulating outside the U.S. as well. Um, just don't really know. It, it may just be a subset of uh, Omicron, much like some of the Delta subvariants uh, emerged. And there's no evidence to show yet that we have to be concerned about it. Um, that doesn't mean something might not come about later on, but I would imagine with all of the worldwide surveillance that's going on at this point, that we would start to pick up some signals. So for example, think about how quickly we went from detecting Omicron at the end of November to really um, starting to hear from world, the World Health Organization and, and the US federal agencies that this was a really uh, worrisome Variant. We're, we haven't heard that with many of the other variants that come along. So I think we're a little gun shy at this point. So anything that comes along understandably makes us nervous. And I think we're, we're being very vigilant about it, um, certainly not just here in the Bay Area, but around the world. 
Uh, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but again, you know, we none of us have those crystal balls, but we feel like it's not looking like it'll be any worse than Omicron. Hmm. Some experts are predicting that after this Omicron surge, the cases we experienced in December and January, that we may be in for an uptick in long COVID cases. Are you expecting that? Yeah, that one I can uh, I can say that will happen. Uh, the 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 magnitude and the duration is unclear, but we are absolutely seeing long COVID pop up, and it's really un- unfortunate. It's uh, you know many of us around the country have long COVID clinics, and um, just there isn't anything really that we can offer to either prevent it at this point. It, it although I'll mention something in a second, but there's no specific way to to deal with it. Really what the clinics are doing are two things. One is trying to ameliorate some of the immediate symptoms. So if people are having cardiac problems, medications for that or for or pulmonary problems or kidney problems, uh, some of the things that are happening that are neurologic or psychiatric are really um, harder to deal with. And I actually, and interestingly enough, we are seeing quite a number in that category of neurologic problems and even psychiatric issues. They're hard to tease out from what's baseline because of people just being stressed from this horrible pandemic. So it's hard to know if it's a direct viral effect in some cases, or if it's really related to the indirect impacts we talked about earlier. But the second reason that we're following people is to just track and see what exactly is happening, What? how many people are being impacted, how long will it take for these, these symptoms to resolve and how what, are, what treatments are working. So there's a lot to be learned here about the long COVID issue. Um, and we are making a little, little, little bits of progress, but I'm sure not enough for those people who we've heard about who are really devastated uh, you know, and the spectrum is interesting too. Some people are absolutely devastated and can't, you know, get back to work. It's just been difficult. Others have minor longer term symptoms that seem to be getting better over time. So we are learning as we go along, but it is certainly going to be a problem. And then finally, I just wanted to say that there is some evidence, not great, but there is some evidence that vaccination actually can prevent long COVID. Now, again, not great data yet, but that could be a glimmer of hope for and another yet reason to think that vaccination could really um, help not only prevent immediate infection, but if somebody does get infected, prevent those longer term symptoms. Well, Stephen writes, one lesson from this pandemic, we need to teach about public health in our schools, both its purpose and history, so everyone has a better appreciation for why these governmental powers and capabilities are so necessary. Final thoughts, Dr. Maldonado, for those who are wary of this decision, those who are excited, I guess just generally, it feels like we are managing this on an individual level so often, right? Yes, I, I, I agree. And I thank you, Mina, for and and um, for all of all of the work and just getting this out to the public. It is a, it is a frightening set of times. I mean, there are no guarantees here, but we do know that certain things are working well. We have these amazing vaccines that if they hadn't been around, it would have been much worse. And masking in certain situations for certain people is still going to be an option. So we just need to be able to tolerate that risk and be, you know, go to support yeah. groups if you can. We got to well, doc- get through this step at a time. Dr. Maldonado, Leslie McClurg, thank you and thank you, listeners. Be well, be safe. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.